some of them that got out seem to have evolved into a super race of parakeets. You are listening to Yeah, we we were looking at a picture of a of a of a bee on the cover of my guide to the bees in your backyard. That's an urban wildlife publication. We both own a copy. We should be um, by Joseph S. Wilson and Olivia Messenger Carroll. Yeah, um, and this has been helping me open my eyes to bees. I've been, I mean, I'm trying to ID more of them. I'll tell a quick funny anecdote related to this book. They tell you in this book that you can refrigerate, you can capture, and then refrigerate a bee, and then it will remain sort of like asleep or like in torpor or whatever for long enough to like get a good look at it and spend a few minutes trying to identify it and stuff. So I went in the backyard and I, I nabbed a, some, you know, medium sized, like honeybee sized, um, mostly black bee. Carpenter bee? Uh, maybe. <laughs> I don't know yet. And so this is what happened. I put it in the refrigerator you know, then after like a couple hours, it's like curled up in the bottom of the jar. You know, it looks like it's dead. And so I get the, I got, we got our, I'm looking back here, my little digital plug-in USB dissecting microscope. And so I plug that in, got Magnolia here, Gigi here, got this bee. I put it in the little tray to look at. And within like 30 seconds, the thing starts waking up. And so I'm sitting here with like Magnolia, who's like four, and she's getting so psyched about the bee. And I'm like, wait, but it's moving. I don't want this, like, pissed-off bee stuck in our dining room. And so, like, I start, like, trying to take a look at it, snap a few pictures, and then, like, it falls on the floor, and I get it off the floor, and finally let it go in the backyard. Um, and so I, I'm still trying to figure out what it is because I didn't take pictures of the right... I, I, was, I was, you know, sort of in a rush, and I didn't get the right characters, or characters photographed to be able to... or features photographed to try to, to tell what it is. But... The- um, but I was just pointing to uh, the joint between two of the segments on the bee's legs, and I was saying that that's what Matt is. This is true. Which is the bee's knees. <laughs> so, Mr. Bee's knees, um, well, actually, sorry, you just started with us. So, I, hey, this is your, one of your regular co-hosts, Billy Brown, with... Tony Crowsdale. And our guest host... Matt Halley. All right, and besides... Who... We realize... Hadn't had him on the podcast as much as we thought we did until I actually asked Matt. And he's like, no, I think you only had me on once. And I don't know why we, Matt should be like, you know, multiple season kind of guest. Well, that... that. I think he's going to be regular. Yeah. Um, not least of all because he lives with you and he's easy to wrangle, you know. I'm glad to be <laughs> Yeah. But he's also... He's also actually a professional biologist. Yeah, he's a PhD <laughs> candidate. And he also um, is, a, is a, a very good speaker. Yes. So, um, and, and the bee's knees, apparently. And the bee's knees. So, where do you work? I work at the Academy of Natural Sciences at Drexel University, okay. and I'm working on a PhD at Drexel in the, the uh, Department of Biodiversity, Earth, and Environmental Science. I study thrushes, family turtidae, and especially, <laughs> I know, I just like to say that, you know, the that every time I say that, the 12 year old boy in me goes, <laughs> <laughs> and I study a genus called Catharis, which are the spotted. Uh, and the, among the migratory species, they tend to be spotted uh, for okay. forest-dwelling thrushes. 
but there are a whole bunch of neotropical resident uh, species that don't have spots, you know, and some of them act a little funny. Um, so I'm working on systematics and phylogeography and evolution of that group. Great. But before we get too far, I know that one of our, our interviewees, looking at you, Krishna, uh, is probably going to be listening to this, and I want Matt to describe what shirt he's wearing. So I'm wearing a Sahara India shirt. So I traveled to Bangalore, uh, Bengaluru, and wow, what an incredible experience. I was in Karnataka in Madi Kerry for about four or five months, spent about two weeks uh, staying with friends in Bangalore, and got to bird in Bangalore and explore the botanical gardens there, and uh, also out in Mysore, which is just to the uh, west of Bangalore, uh, where there's the incredible Mysore Palace and also some incredible uh, Hindu temple complexes. And you've got just incredible wildlife where you've got macaques at the temple complex and, the, and, and like our guests said, uh, black kites and Brahmini kites all over the place. And uh, yeah, what a spectacular place. There you go. Um, so before we forget, we should do our basic intro stuff. We hope you like this podcast. If you do like the podcast, uh, please tell everyone you know how amazing the podcast is and how that they should listen to it too. Um, you can do that online. You can do that verbally. You can call people up and just tell them. You can slip them a note. Whatever works. And also, please, on whatever podcasting platform you like to use, if you could please rate the podcast. That helps other people find us uh, who are just Let's say they're on iTunes or on Stitcher. They're looking for um, some wildlife or nature podcast that has something to do with cities. Um, that's how people can you can help people find us. Um, you can also tweet at us at Herb Wildlife Cast. Um, you can send us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. All great ways to connect. Um, and uh, you know you can also contribute to the podcast we're always open to ideas for longer form stuff but also if you just happen to see something in the city where you live and this can be something that you think is really neat and special or it can be something that's totally mundane that'll be neat and special to someone in a different city you know like the black kites you know we're gonna hear about a little bit snatching uh or black kites eating termites you know merging winged termites uh, that's something that like might be something that you see routinely, or even just black kites flying around eating trash. Um, well, you know, these are things that might be common where you are, but on this continent, we don't have kites, um, so it's pretty pretty neat stuff. On the way home from work today, I saw a, a small group of beauties, probably three or four, flying together. I assume they're probing hawks. I was on the bus, so I had to look through like wavy bus glass, and we, we like changed lanes, so I lost my view of them. But I assume it's broadwing hawks because they're the hawk that migrates in groups. Yeah. And sometimes they can be in groups of thousands, but, you know, um, they tend to migrate in groups. And it was over the river, but also the highways next to the river. And from what I understand, and this is an urban wildlife uh, interaction uh, or phenomena, is that hawks are starting to migrate via highways because of the thermals that come off of the macadam uh, so that would be really the interesting macadam is actually funny enough is a local people use that term in Philadelphia more than other places hmm I'd say blacktop also yeah asphalt blacktop yeah, yeah. um the uh 
I thought maybe it was like has there been the proper term or something. No, there's a it's in the side. Is this anecdotal evidence for this, or is there? That's what I would like to look into. Has somebody studied this more in depth? I know that the the folks at the Hawk Watch in Militia Hill, um, in Fort Washington State Park, um, so there's it started there because there is a phenomenon of like maybe the first like like. The Piedmont's more or less the foothills of the Appalachians. Right. And I guess, like, the, one of the first, like, def- really defined ridges. It's not quite an, it's not like an Appalachian ridge, but, like, one of the first, like, the first, like, small ridge um, is there. And they know the hawks migrate down there. But they said they also observed, it seemed like they've been observing the hawks uh, flying um, over the highway as well up there. Uh, and, like, and, like, regularly enough. But who knows? I mean, if that's, you know, that could just be. Someone got it in their head that they're over the highway and they keep looking at it. But no, you know. it's. I mean, but I bet you get enough radio tracking devices on enough hawks, you could start seeing that pattern yeah, if it's there. So if you well, see that, record it and give us some wildlife bling. You know, the theme I sort of was building this episode around is parakeets. Although some of the topics will stray a little bit. Let's start by what is a parakeet. So when we say parakeet versus parrot, and there are parrots, there are parrotlets, there are parakeets of different sizes. Parakeets. Well. It pretty much describes like smaller. Not a, the <laughs> parakeet tends to refer to ones that have long. There's they're small and with a long tail. Yeah. Well, there's certain genera too that are considered parakeets. Yeah. Satacula, I think Aratinga. Aratinga, yeah. In um, which is New World genus. Satacula. Um, Satacula is the genus of the rose-ringed parakeet. Yep. We'll talk a lot about those. In um, and the Alexandrian parakeet. Okay. Um, yeah, so it's it's really kind of... I don't know off the top of my head whether or not the birds that we call parakeets with English in the English vernacular, whether they constitute a, a single clade. Okay. okay. Yeah, we're not, and they might not history. be the closest. Well, it's, it, it could be like eagles, where basically larger, proportionally longer-winged raptors are called eagles, and, you know... A bald eagle is not at all close related to a golden eagle. And in fact, smaller hawks and kites are each other's closest relative. You know, so it could be that just anything small with a long tail, they call it. So there's probably more than one paraphyletic genus that is considered a parakeet. So basically, smallish parrots. But but all parrots share certain attributes that uh, make them really extraordinary among birds. In that they learn their vocalizations and they have complex social systems and they have bright iridescent green and bluish plumage that yep. reflects in the ultraviolet. And these are all things that are going to be affected by urbanization. And parrots are, uh, you know, there's a whole lot of parrots around the world that are populating cities in uh, these you know, semi-feral colonies. Yeah. Um, although they're, they're very, they're lovable. People love them because they're parrots and they're uh, extraordinarily well, smart. But um, it, it, you have field experience with parrots. Yeah, I've I've spent a lot of time watching parrots in the wild, um, and I studied. Uh, but actually, the species that back in 2007 I worked with a an excellent scientist, Carl Berg, who it, uh, studied at Cornell and did his dissertation there on vocal communication in Forpus passerinus, which is the green rumped parrotlet. And uh, these are also small parrots. You know, parakeets... But they have a short tail. We think of parakeets as small parrots. These are even smaller. These are like sparrow-sized parrots that 
have that are uh, sexually dimorphic. Males have have sexual singles, blue blue shoulder patches that they can flash. And uh, I helped Carl work. We uh, I was his assistant in 2007, and we documented learning in a wild parrot for the first time. Really? So we've known for many centuries that parrots learn in captivity, but there hasn't been any uh, experimental evidence of parrots learning in the wild until uh, Carl's study that I, and I was super lucky to be there to work and be his assistant. On Very that. neat. So I, I was uh, my first introduction to parakeets in cities um, in 99... In 2000, I was living uh, in Buenos Aires in Argentina, uh, and back then I used to go running, um, and I would run through uh, different neighborhoods, but I was I remember one neighborhood, Parque Lezama, um, where it's kind of like, it's like a green landscape park um, with various kinds of trees, including palm trees, um, and it's on sort of a hillside. I remember one of those palm trees had like but to me, it was a huge colony, but I think not relative to what the species does, but a whole bunch of monk parakeets living in this palm tree. Um, sort of their nest built into the dead fronds, like um, around, the bay, around the top of the, or the, what do you call the bottom of the top of the palm tree. Um, and uh, then, I don't know how many years later, not a lot that much later, I found myself in New York in Brooklyn. Okay, old historic cemetery in Brooklyn. I just want to interject briefly and say that parrots nest in cavities. And so they wouldn't have been building a nest up in a palm tree. Their nests would be in cavities, maybe in the palm, in the trunk no, of the you're, palm tree. You're, do, the, do the monk parakeets, yeah. they do build nests? Okay, all the parrots that I've seen in they like, I've worked they, with have been in yeah. cavity nesters. They, uh, um, they like, I think they build it with mud and then they put holes into it. Oh wow, that's yeah. fascinating. Okay, so yeah. okay, so there's a diversity of nest construction. In oh, good. Okay. Um, so or, then the the monk parakeets um, uh, was in the Greenpoint Cemetery in Brooklyn, and it's this old, I think probably late 1800s, what was probably then a, a rural cemetery in the outskirts of the city. It's the Greenwood Cemetery, but it uh, it has um, these like sort of ornate stone gates. And then, like up in some of the, the 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 sort of ornate like spires and stuff of the gates, the monk parakeets have built their nests, sort of packed in there. Real quick, it, it literally I was looking up monk parakeet, and it straight up says monk parakeet is the only parakeet is the, oh, that only. builds a stick nest. Yeah. Okay. Wow. That's but they build stick nests, but they still have like whole multiple holes. Like they built like they basically build stick nests to make cavities in it. So it's, wow. it's really yeah. I've seen them in the bottom of um, a jabber nest, where the jabber the jabber makes a big nest and they build them into the bottom of the jabber nest. I had a urban parakeet experience. Well, I, was, yeah. I have had many, um, but this one I think is the most notable. I was in my favorite city in the world, besides Philadelphia, Kuchiba, and I was at the there's like a little zoo, little not quite a zoo, but a little kind of mini zoo in the middle of the city, like in a. Um, I mean, it's surrounded by, like, skyscrapers, right? And there is a parakeet um, in the zoo, not, not in captivity, just in a tree, you know, a group of parakeets like, in one of the trees in the zoo. Um, and uh, I was trying to identify it, and it was driving me crazy. I couldn't not get a field mark on this bird, right? And, you know, one of the things you're supposed to do is not look at your field guide right away. You're supposed to, like, look at the bird as long as you can and note... And note 
like make a note of observations, write things down. And I'm like, it's just green. There's no, <laughs> there's no markings. And I was like, I can't. I was like, how am I going to identify this thing? It's so goddamn plain. And then I look at my field guide. Plain parakeet. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. Um, I would like to add quick uh, what what connects that what makes that interesting uh, is that um, that species they nest in cavities and this study that was long term studies uh, started by Steve Bisinger back in the nineteen eighties um, that has banded thousands of of uh, green rump parrotlets over the years and it's still ongoing and they he set up a a uh, artificial population by putting PVC pipes along fence line hmm. in pasture land and uh, two different populations and it turns out that this species is one of the most persecuted for the pet trade and there are lots of green lump parrotlets in pet stores and in people's homes all over the place and including our own city I'm sure and it's one of those species that, to my knowledge, hasn't been uh, introduced yeah. as a feral, as a like a you know a feral population that is breeding on its own. Um, even in the wild, these species are amenable to nesting in an artificial box if you if you provide it for them. Give them a tube, they'll nest in it. In Los Angeles, I'm looking at the website of the California Parrot Project. Um, they do have rose-ringed parakeets and. That's the other species that we're actually talking to people about in this episode, or other genus, because we'll mention we'll bring in the Alexandrian parakeets um, for a little extra bit. Uh, but I think I was looking up Tokyo Wildlife, um, and I noticed discussions in Tokyo Wildlife um, or Tokyo Wildlife websites literature about their rose ring parakeet populations, um, and we'll actually link to like a photo essay about them. That was kind of neat, um, and that got me looking into the species rose ring parakeets. We noticed that they also have a huge population in London. Um, from there, I was looking up, and they have populations in, like, all over the UK, like up to, to Scotland, to Glasgow. They live in the Netherlands. And so I was kind of curious, like, you know, we're going to hear about sort of them and their their introduced introduced spot in a little bit. But uh, we, I was also looking for someone to talk to about what they're like in their native range in South Asia, um, it's bigger than just so, South Asia, yeah. but so the rose ring parakeet, Cetacula uh, crameri, it extends from there's an Indian population and subcontinental uh, group, but then it also extends across Central Africa. I eventually found this this birder in Bangalore, which turned out to be a birding father and son team, and uh, so we're gonna listen to. Krishna Girish and his father talk a little bit about rose ring parakeets in their backyard, as well as some of the other bird life of, of their home city, Bangalore. Hey, how you doing? Doing good. I'm here with uh, my son, Krishna. Thank you so much for uh, agreeing to do the podcast. I really think your uh, story is, is cool. I like that you, you bird together. I started birding with my father um, when I was nine, so I feel, you know, I like to see the same thing. And we still bird together 30 years later. We're still going. <laughs> so um, why don't you um, introduce yourselves to, uh, to our listeners? Okay, so my name is Krishna Girish. I am 15 years old and I live in Bangalore, which is in South India. 
and uh, I've been burning since the age of seven or eight. And I maintain a blog called Offroad Birder. Uh, it's at offroadbirder.blogspot.com and kind of talks about all the birding adventures that I have in and around India. It's interesting. So I, I wasn't much into birding and we went on a society trip in uh, Cupertino where we used to live earlier. And uh, we went birding and all I knew about birds was, hey, there's a white bird, there's a red bird, there's a blue bird. But Krishna was really interested in birds. So now at least I can identify a few birds by sight. I'm not as bad as, uh, hey, there's a big bird flying over there. <laughs> so Krishna got uh, the whole family interested in birding nowadays. So we spend almost all our vacations traveling to birding sites around India right now. So it's been a great experience going birding with him. So tell me about Bangalore and uh, how much do you bird inside the city um, versus going out to the countryside? Uh, actually, uh, in the layout in which we live, we have a lake about uh, one or two roads just behind our house. So whenever it's possible, we just head there in the evening, do some bird watching. And and that's and that lake is right in the city, right? Yeah. So yeah, it's a, it's, a, and what, what, it's a couple of blocks behind our house actually. So it's part of the city, and it's a part of a network of lakes which are part of the city. So the city had a few hundreds of lakes maybe around fifty years ago. Many have disappeared, but we still have a few lakes, which are still a hotspot for a lot of birds. And, and tell me, what kind of birds do you see there? So you have uh, three kinds of cormorants, of which you generally find the great cormorants over here. And you have a lot of egrets, actually. And there's another bird called the red wattle lapwing, which has a nest there. There are two families, actually, over there. I haven't seen the nest, but I know they're there. V very cool. So, very so cool. we have a pretty, you know, densely uh, treed backyard. A lot of trees in our backyard. So we see, we see a lot of flower peckers, sunbirds coming early in the morning. So it's a huge chatter in our backyard early morning with these sunbirds and flower peckers coming to, you know, drink honey and make, make you know, sending the message that they're awake. So a lot of birds. And I think what uh, you know what uh, we started with was the rosing parakeets. So you want to talk? Yes. Yes, that's that's something very interesting to us, yeah. So when we first started our garden, one of the first trees we planted was the peacock flower. Uh, over here we call it the Rajamalli. So after a while when the tree started uh, fruiting and uh, stuff, uh, we we actually saw in the morning that rosewing parakeets used to come in and eat the seeds. So we kind of did a bit of research about it. We found that uh, the green seeds that are the immature ones that haven't grown fully are edible. But as soon as the mm. seeds become brown, they become toxic and so you can't eat them. So uh -oh. somehow the packets knew this, so they were only touching the green seeds. And what it would do is it would sit on a branch, it would pluck off a single one and then go sit on our garden wall. And it would uh, hold the seed in one hand one claw and neatly pluck off the part of this, uh, the hard covering and it'll eat up all the seeds inside. It's actually a really, really neat cut like straight and it's a great thing to just, even the, just to see. That is, I, mean, I love that bird. I've seen them in um, um, Thailand before. Huh. Yeah. So that, they are, um, yeah, they, they they seem to do well in cities because I think they're living in cities like throughout uh, Europe and now too, and even like become an invasive species some places. Absolutely. So there's a huge there's there's one more lake near our house, which is a maybe a half mile away, 
and this is an island in the middle of a lake so early morning there are like hundreds of parakeets over there it's a huge chatter and many farmers who are outside bangalore in the areas outside bangalore still a lot of farms out there uh, it's a huge pest for them because they come and come in huge flocks and eat a lot of these uh, crops so many of them either have catapults or guns to chase these birds away and actually the parakeet it has a very important role in uh, like uh, folklore and uh, mythology so what uh, local astrologers do is they have this bird they'll snip off its wings and it can't fly and they'll teach it to pick out a card from a bunch that kind of a sort of fortune telling it's like tarot cards oh wow that's kind of sad but pretty pretty interesting as well um so so it's culturally it's, it's, the bird has a, a big cultural yeah. um significance as well absolutely so if you look at you know traditional indian art this is a symbol of spring the the parakeet is a symbol of spring arriving here tell me about, so how big is bangalore so bangalore is uh, how many people uh, people wise is probably one of the biggest cities in india it's around 8 million people and that's a huge pressure on the urban wildlife also and it's interesting that you know a lot of wildlife is adapted so except for example black kites and brahmini kites black, they they used to be uh, hunters you know and now they've adapted to become scavengers here so lot if you see look a lot of the land uh, landfills around bangalore where garbage is being dumped you see a huge flock of uh, black kites typically over there so they just feed on all the urban waste that comes to them and brahmini kites they generally live near lakes and although they still do catch fish they also rely on human means to get their food and yeah they are uh, uh, for our listeners uh brahmini kites look like a mini bald eagle so that was fun modern is wonderful folks I want to come hang out with them in bangalore and they they also and they they ended up talking about a bird that comes up whenever we talked when we when Tony gets talking about urban bird life from Asia and in Africa you always work in the kites yeah the the uh, milvus kites because there's also the the, the yellow-billed kite i believe in in which might just be a subspecies of black kite but there's a yellow-billed kite in you can find it in trash dumps and, and, and like Matt Nairobi. brought a couple Indian bird guides who's flipping through them right now and um yeah and I think in Australia I've seen Milva's kites and also, I've seen kites and also like the Bromley kite he talks about I've seen them in like you know Brisbane Australia flying mm-hmm. around so they're there seems like a lot of the in any in the Australasian tropics. Well, I, Afro, all in the Afro tropics, all the way to the Australasian tropics. Through the whole old world tropics. It seems like the old world tropics. It seems like kites kind of take the role of gulls and crows in uh, big cities. Oh, and the Brahmini kite is in a different genus. Okay. Haliastur. There we go. So we have a couple of genera here. Yeah. I had a hard time getting someone to talk to in Tokyo. We did end up talking to a naturalist who will, who will work in later, but. Um, more about some other topics um, once we talk about raccoons and raccoon dogs episode. But I did find a great a great interviewee in London to talk. We're, we're going to link to some articles or tweet out some articles for background. But this was some observations of how the exotic rose ring parakeets are working into the we'll call it the local f- food webs of London. I'm Rafe Hancock. and i watch the birds in hyde park and kensington gardens and i write a blog about them 
It's called Kensington Gardens and Hyde Park Birds. I'm never quite sure what I should be calling them. Rose-ringed parakeets or ring-neck parakeets that you see uh, in, the, in the Kensington Gardens and in Hyde Park. Yeah, they are rose-ringed parakeets, but it's a subspecies of ring-necked parakeets. Uh, it, the ring-necked parakeet group is Psittacula crameri, and uh, this one is Psittacula crameri manilensis, and it's a South Indian species, which is rather odd because it's putting up with the uh, British climate. But this particular uh, subspecies has been kept as a pet for at least three... Th- uh, no, more than 2,000 years anyway. There's a relief at Pergamon in Asia Minor, which was a Greek city at the time, from the 2nd century BC, which shows a rose-ringed parakeet. And, uh, sorry, I'm sorry, it's a mosaic, not a relief. There's a mosaic at Pergamon in Asia Minor from the 2nd century BC, showing a rose-ringed parakeet, absolutely recognisable. And it's clear that it was being kept as a pet, and it must have been brought in along the Silk Road. So they've been here for a very long time. And they've been kept as pet birds in this country for really a very long time too. I mean, uh, at any rate, for several centuries. And uh, they must have escaped from aviaries before now. But being South Indian birds, they aren't very hardy. And uh, they probably didn't survive. But at some point, fairly recently, probably in the last 30 years, uh, some of them that got out seem to have evolved into a super race of parakeets that can put up with the English winter. And uh, as a result of that, they've spread very fast. Uh, They started off as a small colony in Kensington Gardens, just in one place. They seem to spread quite slowly, although uh, they breed up quite fast. They don't actually invade territory at very high speed. Sometimes the front of the parakeets only advances by a few hundred yards a year, I think. And uh, so there was this a little group of them in Kensington Gardens, and they've only in the past two years have there been substantial numbers of them in Hyde Park, which is immediately adjacent, uh, which shows how local they are. And uh, they tend to cluster near the statue of Peter Pan and people come and feed them there which of course encourages the parakeets to hang out there. I think the total number in the park is about 80 but if you go to South London Kingston for example which is just south of the Thames uh, you might see 20,000 of them this is why people are getting rather upset about them. I can see why Uh, They nest in tree holes and they seem to use tree holes as uh, shelter in the winter And they feed on fruit when fruit's in season. Uh, They eat leaf buds and flower buds too. And uh, they get through the winter somehow. I'm not absolutely sure what they eat then. There are probably some berries left on some of the trees and they certainly eat berries. The first bird we saw eating a parakeet was a tawny owl. Tawny owls normally live on mice and small rodents. And this one had caught a parakeet and was feeding it to its owlets, obviously with uh, four owlets to look after, there was a need for more food, and it had caught this parakeet and we were mystified as to how owls catch parakeets owls are rather slow flyers and parakeets are very fast flyers although they travel in straight lines and later, a friend of mine saw an owl trying to catch a parakeet, and the way that it did it was to 
sit in the top of a tree and uh, look at a lower tree where parakeets tended to congregate. And the lower tree had some bare branches, leafless branches at the top. And the parakeets were sitting on these. And the owl glided over silently, because owls can fly completely silently, and tried to pick parakeet off one of the branches. It missed. But that's obviously the way they do it. When was that? What time of day was that? It was in broad daylight. Huh, Okay. Yes, owls normally hunt at night, especially at dawn and dusk. Uh, but with owlets, they have to hunt in daylight because the owlets get hungry and start making fuss. Well, we saw a hobby eating a parakeet. Hobbies are small migratory falcons, and they come to the park in summer, just a couple of them usually. And uh, that really only just larger than parakeets, and it was rather a surprise to see this hobby. Again, it was a hobby which had young, it had two young, and so it was having to catch extra things for them. Normally hobbies eat small birds, they can catch swifts and uh, dragonflies. But uh, this time, anyway, uh, we saw a young hobby eating half a parakeet, presumably the other one had got the other half, and... uh, It's not difficult for a hobby to catch a parakeet because they're very swift birds, very swift and agile. Parakeets are very swift but not particularly agile. They tend to fly in dead straight lines and so all the hobby has to do is to fly after it and drop on it. But actually killing a bird almost its own size is another matter. And quite a lot of people around here have seen uh, parakeets being eaten by peregrines but that's not a surprise at all except to wonder why peregrines would bother with them when there are plenty of urban pigeons which are much bigger and meatier. I thought I saw something also about sparrowhawks. Uh, Yes, sparrowhawks will have a go at almost anything and a a female sparrowhawk, which is larger than the male, can kill a pigeon. So sparrowhawks can certainly eat parakeets. I've never seen a sparrowhawk eating a parakeet myself, but it has been seen. Um, I'm kind of curious, like what what do you think about these parakeets? The parakeets in the park are certainly not interfering with the other birds to any great degree. They do steal their nest hole, but it's a big park full of old trees, full of holes, and there are plenty of holes for all. Otherwise, I don't think they molest the birds at all. Okay. Obviously, when there are uh, 20,000 of them in Kingston, people get rather disturbed by the noise, but I'm always very reluctant to describe a bird as a pest, considering that I'm a member of the number one pest species on (laughs) Earth. Exotic Invasive! This is something that, that, Tony, you've talked about in the context of your Miami birding trip, of where you might have... What were they, turtle doves? Uh, Eurasian collar doves. Eurasian collar doves that, you know, are spreading, but apparently, you know, make fine food for the local Cooper's hawks and other... Cooper's hawks eat a lot of them, and apparently short-tailed hawks, which are a beautio that specializes in birds, which is unusual for beautios. They tend to eat mammals. Beautio is a genus of... Of hawks like mm. red tail hawks and, and buzzard cousin, hawk. common buzzard. Yeah. Yep. So um, they tend to take things off the ground, like you know, small mammals. But this is a, a beauty that actually specializes in, in taking uh, um, birds from the forest canopy. Okay. Um, and uh, they're very common in the tropics. So, but they have a, a, a small toehold in the Americas and. and uh, 
Talon Hold. Talon Hold, indeed. <laughs> in, uh, um, in Southern Florida. Well, actually, Central and Southern Florida. Um, but they were looked like they were declining and in some trouble, and uh, they're endangered, I believe. And but it seems like they're really like eating Eurasian collar doves and have kind of shift or starting to shift their breeding to urban areas because uh, a bit because of the uh, you know the numbers of reliable food source. Yeah, and you know it's a novel ecosystem where like they're probably really competing with other invasive species, or I mean, if it's even called invasive at this point. They're yeah. not like they're out in the, you know, they're not even really in agricultural areas. They're mostly just in urban, suburban areas and not even in like, you know, they're not, certainly not competing with morning doves in like big, in natural, con, you know, more natural conditions. So Yeah. I mean, this idea that they might not be that harmful to anything, it, it kind of makes me wish we had parakeets. Yeah. Why I'm, can't I'm, we? I'm surprised we don't have monk don't, parakeets. Uh, I know. <laughs> we used to. Yeah, we used to have the Carolina parakeet. Oh, I saw some other, um, another feral, feral parakeet population in Cairo, Egypt. Uh, I, I don't have that much to report, honestly. I saw, you know, saw a number of the birds um, along the Nile River, and I think they were sulfur-winged parakeets. I'm not sure the, that's just the English name that I'm remembering. You might want to look that up on Google. Yeah, um, I'll cut it out if you want. Yeah. But it was it was cool. It was uh, interesting to. I was exploring Cairo and going around, uh, you know, around the pyramids, and I went to the Egyptian Museum, and I was in and around Tahrir Square where the Egyptian Revolution just happened, and that's where I was staying right there. And there were, um, you know, there were parakeets that flew through the square, and I walked down. Uh, you know, I went to the pyramids the one day and walked down along the, the uh, banks of the Nile. And saw a bunch of them up in the trees, and it was it was a very cool experience. And I mean, they're all, I mean in the tropics. I mean, in the uh, neotropics, there's parakeets. Oh, you know, there's parakeets and parrots in any city park, you know. But I saw uh, chestnut-fronted macaws in Caracas, Venezuela. We talked uh, about the ones in um, my trip to Miami. There was a, a yellow chevron, wasn't you know, right-winged yellow chevron. They're both there. Ones when you count, when you can't. Then, of course, in California. Famously in San Francisco, the parakeets of Telegraph Hill, and um, which I love that movie, especially for the ending, because they're taught they're uh, we'll get married. Yeah, well, the 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 filmmaker she's following this very charming, endearing guy who's just in love with these uh, parakeets. You know, they call them conures, but they're they're parakeets. Um, that conures only in the pet trade. That term's only used in the pet trade. Well, actually, conuropus is the genus. Right, but um, it's a genus of parakeets. Well, they call things that are in Aratinga conures too. Okay. Right. Um, so anyway, he uh, he's in love with these these paras- parakeets, and uh, and he's you're really you know super into him, and he's kind of socially awkward but in an endearing way. And they they talk about the different ones because you tell them apart by you know individuals and then at the end they're like in the, in, the, in these two parakeets paired up and then like the filmmaker I forget her name but she's like and we became a pair her and the subject of the of, apparently in the filming of it they got together romantically and and I thought that was like adorable. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Um, I was I was looking also at other cities in addition to Bangalore. I was looking at um, I looked up Dhaka uh, in Bang in Bangladesh. Initially, I was looking at some stuff like a university survey 
just that showed that there are rose ring parakeets living in this university campus. Um, but then when I was just Googling like parakeets in Dhaka, I found um, the Bangladesh Alexandrian Parakeet Conservation Project. It, you know, I, I thought, okay, this is interesting. What the hell is an Alexandrian parakeet? But it is a, the largest member of Cetacula. the genus that includes the rose ring parakeets it's also. Spectacular. Spectacular, spectacular, exactly. And there's this natural, this this biologist, really, I call him naturalist. He's he's a trained guy in Dhaka, Sorav Mahmud, who we included on an early episode talking about starlings slash minas, shaliks in in Bangladesh. But we also uh, I also talked to him about his work trying to start up a project to conserve Alexandrian parakeets in Dhaka. Uh, my full name is. I'm the Sharif Hussain Shorov. I am doing job with Center for Environmental and Geographic Information Service. Here I am role-playing as an ecologist and doing almost the biodiversity-related research and study. And also I am writing to the newspaper basically the leading newspaper of Bangladesh, Daily Star and Puthamalo, regarding the wildlife and nature conservation. And as well as I am doing photography, basically the nature photography. And I am doing some conservation-related work, doing my own. Tell me, what, what first drew my attention to you is the work you're doing on your own with the Alexandrian parakeets? Yeah. Uh, could you please start off by telling me what is an Alexandrian parakeet? Uh, it is a parrot, or it belongs from parrot's family, you know. Yeah. And in Bangladesh, we have seven species of parakeets and parrots. And Alexandrian parakeet is the largest parakeet in Bangladesh. And the among of the seven species, this species... It's critically endangered, based on IOCN Bangladesh. Okay, and what does it look like? It looks like grass green, and the male and female differ between the male and female. Both have win, uh, maroon patch in wings, both wings. And female have no ringed in neck, but male, adult male have prominent Maroon ringed, surrounding the neck. Okay. Um, so a prominent maroon ring around the neck. Neat. Why would a parakeet want to live in the center of the city? Uh, in Dhaka city, once upon a time, like the 19th century, a lot of reptiles and a lot of mammals as well as the tiger and uh, so many bird species. Because in 20th century, a lot of trees and wild bush and sharps all over the Dhaka city, you know, now the population of Dhaka city around 17 million. So 400 or 300 years back, not, not so much population. And, and the environment was too good for the wildlife. And the Alexandrian parakeet like the drier, drier part, okay. geographically, drier part. But um, in out of Dhaka, we have three locations spotted three location it's all the north bengal parts and the population is not too much it's very little around five or six or more not more than ten 
the record of Alexander in Parakeet from the North Bengal. But in 2014, I just have seen some Parak sounds like sounds and started to monitoring and checking. And suddenly I found a flux. It's about 13 flowing over the top building of Dhaka city. And after that, I started searching what they are do in Dhaka city. Okay, thank you. And where do they where do they nest in Dhaka city? Yeah, they nest in a building cavities. Okay. And so, what's one thing I forgot to ask you about them? Why are they uh, endangered? You know, Parakit is a game bird. Like the people of many countries would like to pet the parakeets and Bangladesh is not dissimilar with this other country like the pet, animal pet and parakeet is very much cordial with the human being. They can talk and the poachers and some traders always try to catch some wild birds for sale. And another thing is the habitat, uh, the large tree and also the lack of food item, basically the fruiting tree, basically due to the hunting and also for the trading. Okay. And also for the pet, the parakeet became rare in Bangladesh. Okay. And so tell me about, um, once you found the parakeets living in, in Dhaka city, what did you start? What did you do? What is the, what is the project? The project is about the observing the feeding, roosting, and breeding behavior, as well as the population, and also the their activities like roosting, and, and also also the behavior regarding the fledging, like that incubation, brooding. Okay, and I, did you put up any nest boxes? Yeah, I have put 10 nest boxes. Uh, it's a testing, it's for testing. First time I set up ten nest boxes for testing. Horse they it's they they like or not like. But first year uh, they like it and try to make nest there. But uh, some other species like starling and other cavities birds try to chase them, and uh. the parakeet became. Not successful first year. I think this year, I think they will again. But I am thinking to set up the wooden box. Okay. What did you use the first time? Uh, I used the pipe, PVC pipe. I thought there were so many inspiring things in that, in that, in, in, in Swarov's work. Um, first, you've got a... You know, it's locally endangered, but um, endangered parakeet or species that turns out to have found its own way into urban habitat. You know, that that finds that the the you know cavities in old buildings, just like you have starlings here. You know, the cavities in old buildings serve as great um, tree hole analogs. You know, and same with kestrels. Same with kestrels. Other cool natives too. Yep. And uh, and then that the guy gets you know just sort of we have we we look around the table we have friends who do this kind of thing we'll be like you know then start researching 
the this animal that they that he turns up in the city, and then next thing you know, he's like he's he's building nest boxes, and and uh, I've got a picture on Facebook. He's also on Twitter, but. Um, on Facebook, he got some pictures of his project with like with Swarov standing next to like stacks of wooden nest boxes he's gonna put up, um, which is just it's just is so cool. It's like the kind of thing that um, maybe I'm, I'm he's a professional ecologist. I'm sure he got the right permits and everything. But I, I wonder how hard it would be in, in Philadelphia to try to launch a, a nesting project for an endangered bird species, even if it was in the city. Um, but well, one thing that he has going for him is that. This Alexandrian parrot is big and charismatic, and uh, yeah. you know, if any species can, you can drum up public support to save it. That seems like it's got to be that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> named after Alexander the Great because he exported them. And this is a this is something. Don't make an important point there about them being exported by Alexander the Great and seeing like the, this this genus like showing up on mosaics, like Rafe was talking about. Um, we'll link to some pictures and articles about those mosaics where you're looking at these mosaics made by like there's one that was excavated by the Roman sorry excavated in London um, first century Roman mosaic in London that includes what I think were the rose ring but it's still the same genus of, of parakeet so that's you know a few hundred years after Alexander but uh, but you know a, a group of parakeets that even in the ancient world were being traded around the continent into far distant places. Yeah. I think it's crazy. Like his influence is his day, you know, like you hear like there's a parrot, parakeet eat after him because he apparently liked it and exported it. Yeah. And then like Kandahar, Afghanistan, Kander, can Alexander, he found it at Kandahar. Oh, that was one of his Alexandrias. Yeah. That was one of his Alexandrias. Yeah. It's crazy. I thought about that. I hear stories about people that so this is kind of a side but like let's for the sake of being like Joe Rogan-esque and like and throwing down apparently back in the day <laughs> um let's throw down people used to um like Roman emperors or like powerful people when Alexandria was still like a place you could visit and see Alexander's grave they would go there and reflect on like what Alexander the Great had done at his age, you know, and the and how insignificant their lives are compared to him. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, like should, who should who should that be for us? Like, what like naturalist should we go? Should we like should we go to? Should we like think about like Jane Goodall when she was like in Gombe, like in like her early twenties, and be like, I'll never accomplish what she did in my life. What she did in my she was 25. You know. Like, that would be like what? What are like? What would be our equivalent uh, be? Man, you, know? you got me thinking. I mean, he didn't write about it quite yet, but Darwin was like making his great observations when he was young on the Beagle. You know, well, Roger Trip Peterson was yeah. pretty young when he made the Peterson Guide. Hmm. Yeah, it's, Peterson is what I'm thinking about because I've seen pictures of the guy. I'm like, wait, a he's still alive, and B, like, no, he's not anymore. Oh, he's not. You think it's Sibley? Sibley. I'm sorry. I'm thinking Sibley. Yeah. So Sibley is. Sibley's how old now? He's probably only in his 50s. Maybe 60? So Sibley's like 50s or 60s, and the book came out... In the 90s. So He was in his 30s. He was in his 30s. He's, again, younger than we are now. Well, not you, but Tony and I are older than he was when he he brought out what many regard as the best birding guide for... Well, I'm 34. Okay. What are you doing? 
What am I, <laughs> what am I doing? Uh, oh. Matt, Matt doesn't have to worry about that. He's I'm very working prolific. on some good ornithology. Yes, he is. Matt's, he's, he's also put out a, a, a few records. You know, yeah. uh, not least of all... I haven't conquered any countries. Wait, not yet. least of all synthropic organisms. Yeah, of course. Matt is part of our... I mean, I can't believe we didn't mention. I can't believe we didn't mention that like the first thing. That we were, excuse me for being remiss. My apologies to you, Matt, and to our listeners who are deprived of knowing even sooner. Although we have mentioned him obviously before, but yeah, this is the guy who does uh, who plays the keys on synthetic organism and and a few of the other. I mean, he sings with you on it also. Yeah, I mean, Matt. Matt's a real musician. Organism. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, he does the. It's the, the the thought of Matt backing me up is absurd because he actually can sing. But yes, he Matt was backing me up on that song, which is hilarious. And Matt and I, we're gonna keep it low for now, but we may have a music project coming up. We finally got our Parakeet episode in. Thanks to Matt for joining us. Sure thing. Great to be here. Thanks to our interviewees, um, Sorov, Rafe, um, and of course Krishna. So. Um, if you got some observations of your local parakeets, whether they be native or exotic, please... Or um, maybe it's ambiguous. Or ambiguous. Spectacular, spectacular. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> Matt, I'm going to dedicate my life to, to describing one of those spectacular species, to just name it that. So with that, uh, you know, if you see any special, um, anything special, parakeets or otherwise... Uh, record a little voice note on your phone and pop it over to us. We'll put it at the end of the episode um, for some wildlife bling. How long until that's like till that so- that song is like no longer like in the public mindset? At least five years. Okay, we're good. Um, <laughs> Might be too late to make the video though of me dancing around like the boardwalk at John Hyde National Wildlife Refuge in a big sweater. It'll be full of waterfowl for like the entire winter. Yeah, and it'll be cold. It'll be perfect. It's true. All right, so we can make it happen. Yeah, and you could also write us an email at urbanwildlifecast at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at urbanwildlifecast, um, and uh, you can find us on Facebook. We are going to be tweeting and linking to and posting so much stuff out of this episode. There's like a wealth of resources on all these things, articles about the rose ring parakeets in Tokyo as well as in London. We got blogs to touch on. I would also like to post a video of how a parrot learns its name. And from we can the Cornell Lab of Ornithology from our study in Venezuela. We got that to yeah. post. Um, we got local parrot groups we're gonna to link to from the California Parrot Project to some folks in Caracas. We hope we're doing well. Kind of turbulent times in Caracas these days. Um, with that, we'll wrap up. Hey, podcast listeners. Tony's conversation with Krishna Girish and his dad covered a lot more urban birding territory than just parakeets, so we decided to include some of that at the end of this episode as bonus material. We'll pick up their conversation where they left off talking about Brahmani kites in Bangalore. Hope you enjoy. Like so, yeah. Like they have a white tail, white head. Yeah. So, so you know, for, for our listeners who don't know what these birds look like, you know, um, the other thing, the Brahmani kite actually looks like a like a quarter sized bald eagle. The same markings, it's like our national bird in America. Right. So, yeah. And so, yeah. So, please continue. So, uh, this bird actually it's one of like um, it kind of shows that how birds have actually adapted to urban environments. 
so it it has a tendency to nest on uh, stuff like mobile towers so actually a few days ago as we were driving somewhere we actually saw a black kite carrying a twig and it was dropping into the, in a nest it built on the top of a uh, telephone tower oh wow so instead of building a nest on say a cliff or something it's kind of adapted to modern life wow uh, do you have um so are you is there a birding community that you spend time with or is it just like the two of you going out oh uh, there is the bng birds which is kind of like a group for bangalore's birds and it's like a yahoo group in which they discuss a lot of uh, sightings and uh, essentially plans to meet up but we're kind of out of the way from the places where they generally go so we're kind of independent that way yeah so there is a there's a huge group which means every almost every sunday they go to the typical birding hotspots within the city so there's a place called lal bag which is something like a scaled down version of central park in uh, new york it's a it's a it's a probably 200 year old park so there's a lot of mature trees over there so it's a lot of birds which you normally don't see in urban uh, populations over there urban cities over there there's also a few large lakes um so a lot of uh, birds which come in uh, you know the winter to india go to these lakes for example uh, if you go a little outside bangalore there are these bar headed geese which migrate across the himalayas from china to come and uh, nest here during the winter season and uh, someone in airplane actually recorded that this uh, bar headed goose was flying over mount everest so wow wow yeah i this is think that there's a bird that you know breeds in the tibetan plateau in the middle of wilderness and then spends its if after flying over mount everest is spending its winter in a, a, a lake in bangalore india it's amazing right yeah. it just connects the urban you know, landscape to you know wilderness and you know nothing else does that like birds you know and 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 that's one of the reasons i love them and i'm sure it's one of the reasons you love them too yeah, yeah. so one more bird which we uh, i was really surprised to see i've never seen it in my childhood when i was i grew up in a different city but it's it's a shikra which is a small hawk oh yeah, yeah. So it's amazing it's, it's amazing sight it's a it's a small raptor so to see it swooping and catching squirrels and uh, rats it's a, it's a pretty amazing sight so we see it very often and the yeah. no, and the call kiki is a it's a very distinctive call and uh, we have one resident in front of our house so if you go in the morning you might just see it sitting on the tree just across the road or somewhere like really nearby you want to talk about the termites that's a really interesting thing So we have a lot of uh, this is a lot of it used to be a uh, farmland over here so a lot of termites in the soil and what happens typically is after it rains especially heavy rains uh, two days after that these termite eggs hatch and a lot of them emerge out of the soil so they come out as small flying uh, flying insects some of them become queens some become workers but they all come out of the small hole in the ground and typically it happens around 5:45 6 in the evening just before sunset invariably so once this uh, termites start emerging you see a lot of birds approaching over there so you have uh, actually you have black kites coming there you have the shikra coming there you have a lot of crows minas you have minas and even dogs stray yeah. dogs and uh, once actually we saw an owl over there uh, they came out a little late that night so it was dark by the time and an owl was feasting on it an owlet but Oh wow. So the funny part is each of these birds have different styles of catching the insects. So the shikra catches everything on the wing 
uh, whatever's in the air and didn't uh, get past the that got past the other uh, ones on the ground it uh, directly catches those uh, the black kite it catches the it the termites in its legs and then transfers it to its mouth while on the wing and the crows and the miners are generally sitting on the ground and the owl was also sitting on the ground that day when we saw it Wow, that's really cool. And what species of owl was it? Oh, uh, that was a spotted owlet that day, actually. So we have this uh, lamppost. It uh, when it whenever it comes, it sits on the same lamppost. And that day there were ants, so it actually came down for that. Wow, you know what's it's so cool um, because the shikra is very closely related to um, the Cooper's hawk. In, right, which they're both occipiters, and the Cooper's hawk in in the United States and Canada, uh, lives right in cities, right? Like I see them in the park all the time. They eat pigeons, and the spotted owlet is very closely related to the burrowing owl, and in Florida and in the West, burrowing owls will live in city parks and everything. So it's amazing that these two birds, in two completely different parts of the world, I mean these four birds that are you know, you know that are closely related, you know, the hawk, both hawks are closely related, both owls are closely related, and they both have taken to living in the city, um, in, in two different parts of the world. I think that's, that's just amazing. So, you know, it's, it's, it's cool when that happens, when, you know, I guess there's something, you know, there, something about their, the, you know, the similarities that they have is being closely related, both lend themselves to being able to live yeah. in, in cities. And that's really, that, that's cool. Um, yeah, I love that you talk about the, uh, you mentioned it's Central Park, and then you're talking about the um, termites. So in uh, Central Park, they notice a phenomenon where the birds go after when the flying ants that are um, start moving. That, that's where they go look at the warblers. And here you are talking about in Bangalore where the termites start flying all the birds. So that's that's really cool. I, I love these parallels between American cities and in, in cities in India. That's that's really cool. So, um, but uh, yeah, we don't have termites here. Though. I mean, our termites live in wood, not in soil. Yeah. So actually, they start in the soil here and then come into the houses. So, <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. Wow. You've seen sparrows, uh, Tony, because that's, a, that's a something interesting here. It's because sparrows have virtually disappeared from Bangalore. But the only place you can see them here in Bangalore is in the airport. Hmm. So... The airport is a huge food court, and that's uh, and the food court it's lit up. It's, a, it's an airport, so it's always lit up. So there are like uh, maybe two dozen sparrows over there. Yeah, and what happens is they're constantly feeding over there, raising a family. And actually, what happens is I think uh, once once uh, when I was eating something, it actually came out of my plate and bit off a chunk and flew off. So <laughs> I think that's one way they've adapted. And my dad went to U.S. a while ago, and over there he noticed that they're in the airports of JFK and Boston as well, actually. So it looks like they have yeah. a tendency to gravitate towards airports. Yeah, well, we have uh, – you talk about house sparrows? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're everywhere in the, in in American cities. They're, they're, they're on every street in every American city. They're unbelievably common. And they were brought here to clean up after horse waste. Okay. In, so when – uh, I, I don't think I don't know how effective they were. They're, they're alternate. And they do call them house sparrows. They also call them horse sparrows because they they were here to clean up. I guess to eat the bugs and whatever that was in because when horses were everywhere. So I don't know if that worked out well. But now they're here to stay. Um, so Krishna, do you plan to do birding as a career? 
Is this something you want to be? Uh, or is this going to just be your uh, hobby? I'm not entirely sure. It all depends on like what I can do with it. For example, if I found a way to a nice research to, for example, how urban development affects birds, like what we're discussing on now, or uh, maybe I might take it up. But I, I'm actually not sure about anything at this point. But well, yeah, you, you got plenty of time. Um, so do you have um, and have you gone overseas yet? Have you birded anywhere? So do you have any places that you that you dream of going birding um, internationally? Most people, well, a lot of birders dream about going to India, but yeah, but since you live there, so. so. Yeah, uh, we used to live in the, the uh, San Francisco Bay Area till around five years ago. So he started birding over there. So we've oh, seen wow. the west of US, but we haven't seen the rest of yeah. it. And I'm hoping at some point I can head for South America, which is oh yeah the ultimate. So he's already purchased the books. He's already all the got the books of birds of Peru, <laughs> birds of South Africa. I've already got the books for them. So, so he's just. <laughs> Once Waiting for the trip. At some point of time, I'll head there and have an adventure. Is there anything, uh, anything other interesting sightings or, or, or things you, you, you think people want to know about urban wildlife that you, you can tell me about um, that come to mind? So we have another bird here. It's called the uh, drongo. You know, um, I, wish we, I wish we had uh, the video because I could actually show you on my arm that I have a greater racket-tailed drongo tattoo. Oh, okay, cool. I can, I can see a photo over here. I see a tattoo of a bird. I can't see what bird it is, though. So if it's on my arm, it's the greater racket-tailed okay. drongo. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah. No, so here we are. Uh, greater racket-tailed drongo is further to our west in the more forested areas. But here we have the black drongo. And this is another bird that's really adapted to urban life, actually. So uh, what happens is we have a lot of plots of land that people often uh, buy so that they can build their house on it. And often those plots are completely covered in grass or weeds, if I may. And uh, before construction, they just burn the entire thing up so they can clear the land. And the drongo takes complete advantage of this. So since it was uh, plants, uh, insects would be living in it. And insects have to escape that fire because otherwise they're going to get burned. So the insects that can fly, they go up into the air and the drongo is just uh, swooping around there ready to take advantage of the situation. That is so cool. And that's, a, that's like the really great example of, of human wildlife interactions. That is really cool. Um, yeah, so what happens is actually you have uh, a lot of cow herding happening in the area. So we have this guy who comes with four cows to feed on the grass in the plot next to us, like uh, once every two or three days. And you have uh, another, I think you have it there too, the cattle egret. Uh, actually what it does, it's called the cattle egret because it likes to take advantage of cattle. So it'll sit on, it'll sit on top of the cattle and pick off all the parasites. And uh, also, the, when the cat, cow is eating the grass, uh, it takes advantage of the insects uh, that are coming off. So it gets a meal too, and the cow gets clean. So it's a symbiotic relationship. Very cool. So a lot of cows, yeah. lot, lot of cows here are typically uh, owned by individuals. They typically have you know two cows. It's, these are not huge farms. People have like three or four cows, and they typically bring it to these uh, vacant plots of land with a lot of grass growing, so that the cows can feed that and 
it's good for us because the grass gets cleared. <laughs> so, yeah. Nice. And the cattle eagles will be right with the cows, like right in the city. Absolutely. Is that yeah? Yeah. yeah. That's a the cattle eagles are, are an interesting story. Um, they um, they blew over, and I guess in a hurricane to South America in like the forties or fifties, mm-hmm. and then they and then they colonized South America, and then they colonized the United States, yeah. and so they started nesting in like the fifties, and then and, and they so spread they came over, up, yeah. you know. Yeah, but then they now like they're getting rarer. They were like pretty common, and now like you have to really look for them, you know. Oh. But um, so that that's, a, that's such an interesting bird. Um, that that how it's able to to do that. But I never seen. I didn't know. I had I had never seen them like right in the city like that. That's really cool. Yeah, uh, and it's, that yeah. it's interesting that we should go to rural outside Bangalore, whereas there are, there are larger farms. Farmers use practice to mo- you know to get the land ready. And now these acres follow the tractors. They don't follow the cattle anymore. They find that, you know, the tractor... The uh, tractor churns up the insects, so they don't even need the cows in the first place. So they follow the tractors all the way around. Wow. So even though within a city of 8 million people, you still have, like, a fair amount of agricultural land in, in inside Bangalore? Is that... That's, it's, or that more? it's a bit outside. Maybe uh, you go 20 miles, 30 miles, you still see agricultural land outside Bangalore. So there are some areas actually which are like heavily populated and full of buildings, but we're slightly outside that kind of area, slightly. Like it's still Bangalore, obviously, but it's not entirely populated. So there's still a lot of land that people use for like vacant and not taken over by apartments. That's cool. Um, and yeah, I love the, uh, um, I love it's. I love when you talk about the kites because I saw that in Hong Kong where the black-eared kites would be flying around the city, and um, and because in this in the states we have gulls, you know, like ringbill gulls, herring gulls, a uh, laughing gulls, and we also have um, crows um, that will be um, feeding on like you know garbage and trash, whatever, um, and then as it seems like in Asia and the tropics, it's it's kites. That you see, and I, I love that. Um, so, are, do you know if the if the kites have actually increased their population because of cities? I think. Have you heard anything about that? I think definitely, actually, because uh, actually I've noticed an interesting phenomenon. I think the kites have grown so large in number that they've started interbreeding with each other. So, a, a few years ago, I saw a, a certain individual kite which had characteristics of both. So, wow! Did you did you did you get a photo? Uh, I don't really remember. I should actually check. So he doesn't go around with the camera much. He just goes around with the binocs and his notebook. And I wasn't there. So. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All the same way where I, I I never took to taking photos, you know. And every once in a while you see something. But yeah. do you want to carry around a big camera everywhere you go too? You know. Yeah. Actually, the biggest uh, congregation of blackites is the meat market, which is in central Bangalore. So that's a. It's probably you know, thousands of kites. There are photographs of you know the whole. Uh, it's a, the market is a, right in the center of the city. You know, it's simply, uh, right actually the the place where the whole wholesale meat market takes place. And there are thousands of kites which come there typically when this meat is being packed up and distributed because they dump all the uh, leftovers for for uh, garbage clearance later. So these kites congregate typically around the same time when the market is being the market is in operation. So it's a it's a huge adaptation for them. 
it's free food and it's easy to get also. Yeah. Uh, so, Krishna, do you have um, other birding friends your age, or are there, <laughs> is there much of an interest of, of folks your age, or is it are you pretty unusual? Uh, I, don't, I haven't really made any connections with anyone who birds who's my age as of yet. But at some point of time, I plan to start a birding club in Bangalore. And I've given a lot of talks, actually. I've given, like, um, two or three at uh, the lake and uh, one at my school, actually, uh, about the birds of Bangalore. And I'm planning to start a club, but nothing yet. Just Yeah, I was the same way. I, I was birding. When I was your age, I was birding by myself. But that was also before the Internet. So it, was, it, it might have been easier to find people my age Um now but then in the 80s in in the 90 early 90s it was it was pretty difficult um before the internet yeah so that's cool you're that's a you're that's really man i i love talking to you guys because it reminds me so much of me and my dad um bangalore is a pretty interesting place there are a lot of birds still left to see I think for me, it's been a revelation that there's so much, you know, wildlife around you, which you didn't notice until you're aware of it. Someone someone points it to you. You really, it opens a new universe because you think that it's just, you know, traffic and cars and people, but there's much more behind all this stuff. You know, there's a different ecosystem out there. And, you know, if you, once you keep watching out for it, it's a, it's a lot of fun. You're just going in a car trip or a bus makes it much more interesting. You're looking out for wildlife. It's, it's, a, it's a different experience. And I've been really enjoying it. Man, we're getting some great stuff. I really appreciate you guys doing this. Um, any, I want you to tell our listeners what your blog is and how they can find it. Okay, so uh, for quite a while now, I've been maintaining a blog called Offroad Birder. Uh, that's at offroadbirder.blogspot.com. It's owned by Blogger. And in that, all the adventures I've had at birding, whether it's at the lake or any interesting sightings or observations I've made, I put in the form of a blog post so uh, most recently I have a trip to Masinaguri which is in the western Ghats and before that a trip to my uh, grandpa's farm in Kerala which is further to the west of here and that's actually where we saw the tractor egrets tractor and anything further that happens in with me in birding whatever happens over here uh, should be updated over there. So check it out. 